So hey guys, we're back and we have another phenomenal guest for you. Before we do that, I want to uh, thank some folks. I want to thank my friends over at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can find them at tombstoneepitaph.com. I urge you to do the uh, three year for 60 bucks because that saves you $15 overall if you go year to year to year. Instead of paying $75 at three years, you just subscribe uh, at $60, save $15, and you get it delivered right to your door. And again, that that newspaper is delivered right to your door every month, and you'll absolutely love it. I also want to thank my friends over at the uh, my second family at the Wild West History Association. The roundup for 2023 is going to be in San Antonio, Texas at the Alamo. Uh, I would love to see you there. I'd love to see you there as a member. So please join. It's around 75 bucks a year. You get the journal, which is 100 plus pages. It's like a mini book delivered right to your door four times a year. Um, and you also get the ability to connect with historians and researchers and writers like John Bosnecker and Peter Brand and Bob Bosbell and um, gosh, um, Mike Bell and all these wonderful he- researchers and writers in history today. Um, you can connect with them like I have and you can get to know them. And I urge you to join at wildwesthistory.org. So this man came to me uh, through a gentleman named Ernest Marsh. Uh, we've done a couple of podcasts about Bass Reeves, and uh, we have Art Burton on the phone. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you doing, Mike? Good. Um, and if you want to find out more about Art, you can go to www.artburton.com. That's A-R-T-B-U-R-T-O-N.com, artburton.com. And uh, he's got an awesome website. He's constantly redoing it and updating it, and he's got a bio in there. He's got... He does so much. Uh, you can also find his books on Amazon. If you go to Amazon, you can buy his books at Amazon, uh, especially if you're in Europe, the UK, Australia, uh, places outside of the United States. I urge you to go to Amazon because it makes the shipping almost nothing, and you can get his books delivered right to your door, and you can read them, and, and you're going to love them. I haven't gotten to his latest book, which is... Um, Black Gun Silver Star about Bass Reeves. I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm getting there. But um, uh, nonetheless, we're going to interview him and talk to him today. He's got a phenomenal background. Um, Territorial Marshal by Governor David Walters of Oklahoma. Uh, He's been in the Who's Who in Black Chicago in 2007. Inducted into the Hall of Fame at the National Multicultural Western Heritage Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. He's also a who's who in America in 2010 and was given the Living Legend Award by Bare Bones Film Festival in Muskogee, Oklahoma. He's appeared in four documentaries for the History Channel. Uh, He was a participant in BET's Teen Summit with Mario Van Peebles for discussion on the movie Posse. In 2015, Burton appeared on Fox Cable's Legends and Lies episodes titled The Real Lone Ranger. Um, he's had a governor, let's see, well, he retired in 2015 after spending 38 years in higher education. He was a history professor at Prairie State College and South Suburban College and worked as an administrator in the African American Student Affairs at, I'm going to mess that one up, Benedict. Benedictine University, Loyola University, Chicago. Right. Um, he. Oh, I got it right. Right. All right. Um, that that's an eight. So far, I'm doing good. If I if he was doing a test right now, I'd have passed that one. Um, in 1991, Burton wrote his first book on African American and Native American outlaw and lawmen in the Wild West, titled "Black, Red, and Deadly: Black and Indian Gunfighters of the Indian Territory." in 1870 to 1907. He's also written a book in 1999 called The First Book on African Americans Who Were Scouts and Soldiers in the Wild West. The book is titled Black Buckskin and Blue, African American Scouts and Soldiers on the Western Frontier. In 2007, uh, he wrote uh, the scholarly biography on an African American lawman of the Wild West. This work is titled Black Gun, Silver Star, The Life and Legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves. And then his most recent work is the Cherokee Cherokee Bill, Black Cowboy Indian Outlaw. And that is just 
a little bit of what he's got going on. What we talked earlier, like, what do you not do? I I can't imagine. Like, I, I would assume you don't change transmissions or or rotate the tires at the house or anything, right? No, I don't. Oh, <laughs> what do you not do? Like, you you're everywhere. Oh, I don't know. I just have areas of interest that I like to uh, you know go into. I'm not a painter, or you know, some people are good with electronics, that type of thing. So, my thing is basically history. I'm a history nut. So where did, where did you grow up, you know, without talking about family? Were you born and raised? Uh, what were your influences? Yeah, I, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. My mother was from uh, Oklahoma, and my father was from Mississippi. Uh, so um, I would visit my mother's family in summers, and we would go to Oklahoma. And a lot of my relatives were rodeo cowboys. Mm. And that was a shock uh, as a little kid going down there because you didn't see, you know, African-Americans or cowboys on television in the movies. And I had a parcel of them in Oklahoma that were into the culture. And I just thought it was a disconnect uh, when I was a kid. But as you were growing up, did that influence stay with you or did you push it aside and go do different things? Well, it stayed with me. I, I tell you the truth. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, Westerns were huge on television and the movies. And so that really impacted me looking at the Westerns. Um, I did start researching actually the Wild West when I was 11, year old, 11 years old. I started buying books and, and trying to find out what the real West was about. And um, I, I did that for quite a while, I, I really got interested in basketball. I was a basketball junkie uh, through my teenage years. And and then later on in life, I came back to the Wild West. Now, I did have a lot of cousins, as I said, who were in rodeo. And some of them, uh, you know, were very good uh, as as bareback riders and, and, and calf lopers and those type of things. And so I, that was part of my life. And I did my last two years of high school in Oklahoma, where my cousins mm -hmm. lived. I really, at that time, I really didn't know uh, much about that history. Uh, but I told myself I would try to find out later and, and try to find out what African-Americans had done, specifically in Oklahoma, uh, because that's where my relatives were from. But you also, though, stepping away from history just a second, you're also right. an accomplished musician and percussionist. And in your bio, it talks about some of the people that you've played with. And, I, and I'm going to focus on Dizzy Gillespie because I believe that he's probably one of the bigger names in jazz that people might know. Um, did right. Was that in your younger days that you became a percussionist? Did you – because I, I play the drums. Um, I was okay. going to be a, per a, a percussionist professionally, but it so just... Bob Bell. You know, he's a drummer, too. Who? Bob Bowles Bell. Oh, yes, I know that. But yeah. how did you, though, I mean, were, how did you get into becoming a percussionist and, and ending up on Dizzy Gillespie's albums or these jazz? Did they just call you, or did you create yourself such a such a stir about you that these people said i've got to have you on my album or i've got to have you in my club now now what what happened was uh i started uh, playing percussion in the school band in grade school oh. at the age of 10 and uh my father wasn't too happy about me wanting to play drums and so i had to drop out of the school band and he said well instead of buying a $300 set of drums, which was quite expensive back at that time, he could buy me an $8 pair of bongo drums. Mm -hmm. And initially I said, well, I don't know if I want to play bongo drums because I heard uh, people playing bongos on the radio and such, and it was uh, quite intense and, and intricate, it sounded like. But I had some uh, friends in grade school who started playing bongos, and I said, well, let me go ahead and try this. So I started at the age of 10, and we put together a pretty good little 
a Calypso style group with dancers and became the, the hit of the grade school while I was there until eighth grade. And then, uh, as I said, I got into basketball, so I dropped that. But after high school, I came back to the drums and uh, started a rhythm and blues group uh, in my neighborhood. And uh, we formed a group that was called the Soul Naturals. And we won the Illinois State Battle of the Bands in 1969. And I was the leader of the group. And we went to the national finals in North Carolina. And we were first runner up in the national finals at the, the national battle of the bands and half the band got drafted for the vietnam war and that broke up the band so after that uh i did some studio work here in chicago and basically rhythm and blues music but i got more interested in jazz and in 1973 i joined the uh Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, which is world known, started here in Chicago. And so I was in that group and I got to play with many great musicians here in Chicago. And I performed in the Muhal Richard Abrams Big Band. And that was a great experience. And we had the best musicians in Chicago in the band. And uh, a lot of musicians such as Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Randy Western, uh, Sonny Stitt, uh, Lou Donaldson came through town and I would sit in with their bands and play with them. Um, I had to make up the, a decision whether to leave Chicago and I didn't. Many of my friends did leave Chicago and go to New York City or Los Angeles. I decided to stay in Chicago and besides playing music, I got involved in um, administration um, at various universities. First was uh, University of Illinois Chicago. And then I was at Benedictine uh, University where I was the uh, director of um, multicultural affairs. And then I left there and went to Loyola University of Chicago where I was assistant dean and director of African-American student affairs. I did that for 11 years. Then I left there and was at uh, Columbia College Chicago where I held the same position. Now, all those years, I was also teaching part-time at a couple of community colleges here in Chicago. Prairie State College and South Suburban College, where I taught African-American studies uh, courses, uh, included history or sociology, psychology, uh, those type of courses. And I did that part-time up until 2003, where I taught full-time mm -hmm. at South Suburban College. I taught African history, African-American history, U.S. history up until uh, 2015 when I retired. Uh, but I was playing music and continue to play music currently. And so music is a big part of my life. Um, I play conga drums, conga and bongo drums, which is not uh, a regular type of uh, instrument where you get much recognition. But uh, when I first went to college, I wanted to find out the history of the drum. And Dizzy Gillespie was the first person to utilize the drum to any great extent in 1947 when he hired Chano Pozo, a Cuban drummer, to play in his orchestra. And so Dizzy all like, always liked conga drums. And while I was at my university, Governor State University, I did receive a uh, full scholarship for my drumming. Uh, and I'm the only uh, conga drummer here in Chicago area, at least I know they got a full ride to play conga drums mm -hmm. at a university band. So... Uh, that's been a, a big part of my life. And I've recently have started interviewing uh, professional conga bongo drummers for possibly a book and talking about the instrument, the history of the instrument and their careers. And I will probably include my career also in that book when I write it. Uh, but that's one of my projects I'm working on. Well, I'm, I'm glad you would include yourself because I think it's important it gives that connection, right? It gives the reader a connection that who may be an Art Burton fan. And then you're also like, you can write about what you know, because if you want to find out more about what Art's doing in music, if you have Spotify, his middle name is Turk. It's Art. You can find him on Spotify at the Art Turk Burton. If you search that out, it'll bring up his album. I believe that's the only album that you've done. No, I have two albums. Oh, it's two? Uh, yes, Spirits uh, Here and Now. And uh, the, the, uh, 
ancestral spirits, I believe is the second one. Gotcha. So and the first one, the first one is, yeah, spirits then and now. And the second one is, uh, ancestral spirits. And both of them uh, are also on YouTube. If somebody want to go to YouTube and Google my name. Well, that's what you want to do. Cause you know, I, I became a subscriber on his, um, Spotify and, um, I'm going to wait for the royalties to, to, to flow into his, his checkbook. But, um, uh, honestly, he's, the music is fantastic and, you know, thank you. Yeah. It's just really great. Um, I, we shared, shared kind of similar stories. I mean, I was, my mom and dad bought me a drum kit and it was like $200 and my mom, you know, took money out of her little money jar, um, and, uh, bought me a, a five piece drum kit. And I played, in fact, I played and then I stopped playing when I went into air conditioning because that's what I do for a living is air conditioning. And then about right. five years ago, the kids got money together and they bought me an electronic drum kit and uh, I put my headphones on. And to me, I'm I'm Neil Peart from Rush and I'm jamming and I sound great, and but I probably sound like crap, but I have a good time and I still play. That's the main thing. Yeah. So yeah. as your life progressed... You know, when you're doing the thing, Western history's out there. You you went a non-traditional route in Western history, and you focused on the African Americans in Western history. Was it hard to research that stuff? Was information readily available, or did you really have to dig? I had to dig. It wasn't really available. And, and see, most of African American history has been marginalized. To a great extent. So you can't, well, you, you couldn't pick up books and, and really find a lot of information. You might find a little information. And so, um, actually, uh, I got, got married in 1981 and it was about three years after my marriage. I started thinking about my family, about, uh, African Americans on the Western frontier and being a, you know, major in African American studies, I, I, thought that maybe I could do some research. Initially, I didn't want to write. I wasn't thinking about writing books. I was possibly thinking about writing articles because I wrote a, a article on blues and jazz for 13 years called Blue Note here in Chicago. And it was a, a crazy overview of various artists and styles of music. And uh, that was the thing that I went to Oklahoma around 1985 and was at a family reunion. And the people started telling me about Bass Reeves and some of the information was wrong because my cousin's college roommate was from Muskogee, Oklahoma. And he stated he lived in a section of Muskogee called Reeves Edition and it was named for Bass Reeves. And so when he told me that a light bulb went off in my head, I said, well, maybe I can write an article about this guy because I hadn't named, heard of a town or a portion of a town named for a lawman. And so that was my first inception of trying to find out about Bass Reeves. And uh, I found out fairly quickly uh, that Reeves' edition was named for a white banker named Ira Reeves. Uh, the area is predominantly African-American, but it wasn't named for Bass Reeves. And so I was a little bit disappointed when I found out about that. But I persevered and tried to find out what other information I could find out about it. And uh, that got to be quite a journey uh, because when I first when I first started thinking about it, I contacted the, the museum in Denver, Colorado. They had a little small black museum in the basement of a black radio station called the Black West Museum. Hmm. That museum is now located in a house in Denver, but at that time it was in the basement of a radio station. And the gentleman who started the museum was a barber who came from Chicago area. And uh, I called him up because I was kind of disappointed after I got information that maybe Bass Reeves wasn't that big a deal. And I asked him, was there any lawman of note, African-Americans on the Western frontier he had ever heard of? And the first thing out of his mouth was Bass Reeves. And I was a little bit shocked. And I said, what do you know about Bass Reeves? He said he didn't know too much about him, but he said it was a couple of old guys around Denver. And he said that's all they talked about. And he mentioned one that's Reverend Haskell Shoeboot. He said Shoeboot said that Bass would walk the streets in Muskogee with a sad kick who would carry a satchel full of pistols. And said if somebody called Bass's name out, Bass would always put his back up against the wall 
before he turned and seen who was calling his name. Uh, very cautious, like. And so I asked him, did he have a phone number on Shubu? And he said, no, he didn't. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. So I called the operator up in Denver, Colorado. And I asked her, did she have a listing for Reverend Haskell Shubu? And she said she did. Mm. And I dialed the number up, and a lady answered the phone. And I told her I wanted to speak to Reverend Shubu. She said, just a minute. And he got on the phone, and he talked with a hoarse voice. Like, how you doing? Yes. And I told him I was trying to find out information about Bass Reeves, and he laughed. And uh, I didn't know why he laughed. And he told me he was 98 years old and that uh, he had uh, remember seeing Bass walk the streets in Muskogee. And uh, he, he told me that uh, Bass could outfight, outride, outshoot, out, you know. But it wasn't nothing I could do with that. I mean, those are his remembrances he has, but there was nothing I could do with that. And, and I guess, I don't know, phonetically uh, maybe, he felt he wasn't making a big enough impression. And he said, I'll tell you something I see in my own eyes. And he repeated that two or three times. And he told me he used to drive the hack, or which the wagon for Bud Ledbetter, who was a top white deputy in Muskogee at the turn of the century, around 1903, 1904. And he said that uh, Bud Ledbetter was an outlaw at Gibson Station, 12 miles north of Muskogee. And he said a, a fairly large posse. And I'm always double-checking people. And I asked him, I said, well, who else was in the posse? And he said there was a deputy named Depew. And I later did find a, a deputy named Depew in my research. Hmm. But anyway, he said that the posse was after an outlaw, and I guess they were trying to kill him. And my cousins, when I first found out about Bass, gave me contact numbers for other older people to to talk to, and they had stated that Bass would have brought in Billy DeFear, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy. I mean, any outlaw, this time, it was just, you know, I said, if man was this good, everybody would know about him, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, they also had stated he was arresting white folks, and I had problems with that because as a kid going to Oklahoma, Oklahoma had Jim Crow laws, and African Americans were you know, relegated to a second-class status and couldn't go certain places and do certain things. Uh, even here in Chicago, which didn't have Jim Crow law, I had a cousin with the Chicago Police Department. And in 1965, when he started with the Chicago Police Department, black policemen couldn't pick a dead person up off the ground and put them on a stretcher. Uh, the racism was just, you know, that intact. But anyway... Um, I asked Shubu, with the outlaw they were after, was he white or black? And he said he was white. And I kind of you know, said, okay, here we go again. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he said that the, they were shooting at this guy, and I guess he did something that they were trying to kill him. You know, he, he must did a, a very bad crime. And he said by the middle of the day, they had not made any progress at, at, at subduing this outlaw. And I guess he had a pretty good hiding location. He was hunking in pretty good. But the ammunition they were using was Bud Ledbetter's inventory. And he wasn't happy that they were shooting up his bullets and not getting anything done. So he told somebody, according to Reverend Shubu, to go back to Muskogee and get Bass Reeves. And he said that uh, Bass came on the scene toward the end of the day. The sun was starting to set. They had not captured this outlaw, and uh, they had quit shooting at him, so it was pretty much a stalemate. So he said uh, not too long afterwards, this outlaw, I guess, figured he could make a, a run for it, and I watched so many Western movies. Reverend Shubuk said Bass jumped up. I mean, uh, the outlaw jumped up, and I'm thinking the outlaw is going to head for his horse, you know, make a uh, getaway. He said the outlaw jumped up and started running across this field. And so that burst my Hollywood bubble. And he said the posse started shooting at him again, and they were missing. And he said Bud Ledbetter hollered at the top of his voice, get him, Bass. And he said, Bass said, coolly and calmly, I will break his neck. And he said that Bass took his Winchester rifle at one shot, broke this man's neck at 500 yards 
I had, I had never seen nothing like that in the movie. Mm. And so my first impression was this man is lying. You know, I'm, I'm glad he gave me some information, but this is almost impossible. Uh, a, a moving target at 500 yards and, and you're going to call the shot. 500 yards is two city blocks. Uh, that's almost like Michael Jordan type of stuff, you know. So I think the information, I hung up the phone and I was really mad initially. Because I said, I'm trying to get, you know, some information. This guy's going to tell me the biggest lie I've heard in my life. I used to get off the train when I worked at Loyola University at that time. And I walked a mile to work. And so I got this story from Shubu, like, on a Sunday. And so by the middle of the week, I started thinking Shubu was 98 years old. A lie wouldn't necessarily get him any place. Uh, won't do anything for him. He had one foot in the grave for the most part. And the story might be true. And that started gnawing at me. And it was at that time I became possessed and found out any and everything I could on Bass Ridge. And so that was the story that pushed me over the precipice into researching and trying to find everything I could about Bass. But, and, but hold on. Because uh, you'll keep going and I got to ask. Did yes, you get on a plane and go to Denver and meet him? No, I did. Oh. Talking about Shubu? Yes. No, no, I never met Shubu. I, I had many phone conversations with him. Oh. Uh, but no, I never met him in person. I did get to see some pictures of him, so I knew what he looked like. But uh, no, I didn't meet him in person. As... I did meet the uh, the director of the uh, Black uh, Black West Museum in Denver. In Denver. I'm blown away because I'm in Denver all the time. I'm going to be in Denver next month. And I'm going to find that museum, and I've got it written down for me to go and, and research it when we get done with the phone call to find out where in Denver it's at, because i got to go see it. Yeah, it's in, a, uh, it's in a house that was formerly, I guess, one of the first black doctors in Denver. Um, the gentleman that started the museum expired. He's no longer with us. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a nice little museum. As it's you're, well worth visiting. Well, as your phone calls increased with... His name is Shubu, right? Right. As your phone calls increased, I would assume he became more comfortable in realizing that you're not just a one night one nighter, right? You're just not a flyby. And right. did did the stories ever change? Because you know how sometimes you tell a story, it gets stretched, and all of a sudden things get added. Did the did the stories change, or was he always spot on? As far as I know, he was pretty much spot on all the time. His, his stories didn't change. Did he? Actually. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, actually, after I talked to Shubu, uh, all the towns in Oklahoma have historical and genealogical societies. And so I knew that uh, mm. Bas, Bas Reeves lived his last years in Muskogee and was the deputy marshal in the area. Uh, so I contacted the historical society for Muskogee, Oklahoma. And uh, I asked the lady who answered the phone about Bass Reeves because I knew he had died there. And she said that she had never heard of him. And then I mentioned that he was an African-American. And she told me she was sorry, but they didn't keep black people's history there. And that was uh, a, a big, I knew my job was going to get much bigger. Well, that was going to be my question is as you're starting to put together the, the story of Bass Reeves, did some, like, trails or roads just stop, you know, and they just, all of a sudden there was a wall? Or did, as you're researching down this path, did the path just end and go nowhere? Um, I'm, you know, when it comes to research, I'm like Sherlock Holmes. And so, yeah, there, there were some areas that I had to go around, make curves and, 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 and look at things differently. But um, I, I talked to Glenn Shirley, who was one of the top historians on Wild West history from Oklahoma and wrote about a lot of outlaw lawmen. I asked him about Bass Reeves, and he told me Bass was nothing special, uh, had a nice mustache, and was went to prison. That was all he had to say about Bass Reeves. Um, so I knew then that I had to find out whatever was possible. So I spent 
days and days and weeks in the archives, newspaper archives, and also looking at the Indian Pioneer Papers, which are the WPA interviews from the 1930s uh, of the people who was on the frontier in the Oklahoma and Indian territories. Uh, but I, I also visited Arkansas and Texas and, and went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and wound up going to Southwest Archives in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, hmm. digging up uh, federal records and, and everything else I could find. Uh, I was real sad that images were very meager. But uh, when I got into the newspaper articles, that's when it showed that Bass was very unique and was arresting people of various ethnicities, white, black, Indian, who broke federal law in the Indian Territory. And his story was that so phenomenal. Is I was in the archives, and I would be shaking my head saying, people are not going to believe this, uh, because it was just that astounding. And actually, there was a paper written in 1958 by a white man named Front of House, and he was a student at OU, and he had heard about this black marshal in the Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma where he grew up, and he didn't have a name. So uh, he decided to find out who this person was. So he wrote a, oh, I guess it was around a 65-page paper called The Forgotten Lawman. And he went around the state of Oklahoma with a 100-pound reel-to-reel tape recorder and recorded uh, 27, 28 people who knew Bass, including Bass's daughter, who was living at that time. She lived up until 1966. Mm-hmm. And Front of House's uh, paper was very unique because uh, I contacted the Western History Collection of the University of Oklahoma Libraries where the paper was located. And that's probably one of the best libraries on Western history in the United States. But uh, they 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 were aware of Bass uh, due to this paper that Front of House had wrote. And I did later talk to Front of House, and he said that after he wrote the paper, his, he got so much hassle from his uh, peers about writing the paper that he gave it to the library and didn't try to do anything further with it uh, because they, they just felt that uh, he shouldn't have done it. So I, I feel kind of bad about that. But Front of House was very proud of the fact he wrote the paper. And when I found him, he gave me permission to use his paper. So that was part of my first book mm-hmm. on Bass Reeves was some of the research that he was able to turn up. But uh, yeah, it's an ongoing process. I'm still researching Bass now. You know, I, I wrote the, my first book, Black, Red, and Deadly. It's the largest chapter on Bass. Then I came back with the Black Gun Silver Star, which uh, has just been revised. And there's a new chapter on Bass in that book. But I'm still researching bass as I go on. It's ongoing; it doesn't stop. I, I could hear you talk about this for hours. I really, I, <laughs> I'm not. I mean, because what you said about the newspaper and going and reading—I've interviewed a lot of historians and researchers that said if it wasn't for going into the archives in museums and reading every article or every paper, or every letter, or every newspaper clipping, whatever it is, right, that they would miss out on the littlest details that would show up that sometimes the way books are written today by just going online on newspaper.com or wherever, and they miss out on those little nuances, and you did that. I mean, you found all these things about a man that basically history forgot. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I was real, real proud to do that. Uh, you know, after after uh, my first book came out, uh, Black, Red and Deadly, it was at that time I started thinking about the similarities between Bass and the Lone Ranger. And oh, you know, some question. people don't, don't like that analogy. But Bass Reeves is the closest person in reality to resemble the Lone Ranger. And not that we we can't really say proof positive he was the inspiration, but he's the closest thing to it. And uh, I like to always tell people, you know, how it uh, measures up to to the Long Ranger character. Now, the Long Ranger was the most popular radio show in the United States in the 1930s, 1940s, period, and was quite popular. And I understand that Uh, racism in the United States was at its zenith in the early portion of the 20th century. 
So there's no way they could say that they found this information and was inspired to do the Long Ranger story based on this African-American deputy as Martian. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's, it's my thought that Bass could have been the inspiration for the Long Ranger. And actually, there was a, a professor from University of Wyoming <clears throat> named uh, uh, Ravage, uh, Jack Ravage, stated that when he was in college, there was a family related to the originators of the Long Ranger story who stated that they were aware of a black lawman in Oklahoma who had some of the uh, components that the Long Ranger character was, uh, you know, was given. So. I'm telling you, I could listen to you. Just go on and on. Yeah. Um, well, you, you want me to go over the, the, the comparisons between Bass and Long Ranger? I well, can do that now. I, I kind of want to because Bob did, Bob Bozbell did a cover, I believe, on Truest Magazine. Right. And I think it's important. Some people, like you said, just flat out was a no. Right. So so we have time. We've got about 20 minutes. Okay. What is the comparison between the two? And if you're wondering, hold on, if you're wondering who we're talking to, I, I'm sorry. I normally give this out, but I'm I'm so into what he's saying. It's um, this totally makes my weekend. Um, you could, I'm, we're talking to Art Bell, Art, excuse, Art Bell, Art Burton. You can find Art Burton at artburton.com. His books are on Amazon. Uh, I, do you sell books through your website? Uh, it, it directs them where they can purchase the book, gotcha. uh, which is basically Amazon, I gotcha. believe, or or Barnes and Noble. Well, and the reason that, uh, like uh, Peter Brand, I, I think you know Peter Brand. Uh, and Peter's down in Australia is he's taken his books to um, Amazon because folks in Europe can buy the books now extremely reasonable because shipping isn't so much. If you buy them through America, shipping is insane. So if you're in Europe, you're in the UK, you're in Australia, and you want to learn more about this amazing man, and I mean, not just Art Burton of Amazing, but uh, Bass Reeves and, and the his books, you can actually go on Amazon and I just typed in Art Burton, Art T. Burton, and all his books popped up. And so get those delivered to the house, spend some time to read them, and uh, I think you'll be, uh, you'll get a better grasp of who um, Bass Reeves is and why he's so important to American history. Um, wh- what is the comparison? Why is it that people think that? the Lone Ranger character could have been, or Bass Reeves could have been the, I don't want to say model, but what's the word I'm looking for? Inspiration for the Lone Ranger. Right. Okay, Mike, here we go. The Lone Ranger started in Detroit, Michigan in 1933 on the radio. Uh The similarities that I found interesting was that Bass was a Texan like the Lone Ranger. Research shows that the name of the fictional character was Reed. No first name was ever given on the radio television shows, but Reed is very similar to Reeves. Bass handed out silver dollars. The Lone Ranger gave out silver bullets. Bass Reeves rode a great horse at one time during his career. The appearance of it looked white. Great horses, you know, can go anywhere from jet black to the pure white almost. And he rode, also rode sore horses, but he did ride a, a, a great horse during one period of his career. The deputies marshals in the Indian Territory were mandated by federal law to take at least one possumman with them when they went into the field to arrest felons. Many of Bass's possumen were Native Americans. At one point, he worked with Grant Johnson, who was an African Indian who had strong Indian features, and their work together was said to be legendary. Many of the white settlers in Indian Territory did not know or remember Bass's name. They just referred to him as the Black Marshal. Some of the, like, who was that masked man? Number seven, Bass working disguised regularly as the Lone Ranger of fiction did also. So disguise was part of his MO. And you, if you watch the Lone Ranger, listen to the Lone Ranger, you know the Lone Ranger did that also. The Lone Ranger sidekick, Tonto, was stated to be a Potawatomi Indian. And that tribe is found in the Indian Territory, now the state of Oklahoma. George Trindle, owner of the Detroit radio station that began the Lone Ranger series, 
was a lawyer, and he took credit for coming up with the idea of the fictional character. <coughs> Many of the felons that Bass Reeves arrested and, 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 and then were convicted were sent to the uh, Detroit House of Corrections in Michigan. <coughs> when the Lone Ranger was first shown in comics and movie serials, he had a black mask that covered his whole face. Later for television, the mask was reduced to just a smaller portion of his face. So it's very interesting. Why would he have a black mask covering his whole face? You know, that's kind of interesting. But those are some of the comparisons that I found that uh, were quite interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. Don't don't die on us. No, I'm good. Listen, you you got fifteen. You, we got about fifteen minutes, so don't die in the fifteen minutes. Now, after the fifteen <laughs> minutes, I'm okay. Now I'm here with you. When when Bass was older. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope you do. Right. I like it that way. I learned from being corrected. <laughs> when Bass was older, he became a city police officer? Yeah, and at statehood in 1907, uh, he transitioned to the Muskogee Police Department. There, A lot of the deputy marshals at Oklahoma statehood uh, lost their jobs because the federal police were no longer needed. And so then you had municipal and county police took over the law enforcement in Oklahoma for the most part. Because there's a picture. Is that a? I've seen a picture of a distinguished man with a cane. Right. Is that him? That's him. Oh, Holding God. the cane. That right. I mean, I'm. I feel like we're blessed that he lived long enough for modern technology to catch up and be able to get photos of him. Yeah, and he was 68 at that time. What eventually became of Bass Reeves? Did he... Did well, he... he had a... He had, they, the, the Muskogee Police Department gave him a beat downtown Muskogee. He held it for about a year. Uh, it was downtown, and he bragged about the fact there wasn't a crime on his beat in that year or so he had it. And then his health took a downturn, and he expired January 10th. Uh, January 12, 1910, in Muskogee. And where's he buried? That's a good question. Um, people have been looking for years. They did find a book that stated uh, here in the last year that he's buried at Harding Memorial Cemetery uh, in Muskogee, but the gravesite has not been found yet. But uh, they believe that might be the spot, or there's a couple other places he might be buried in Muskogee. We don't know for sure until we find the actual gravesite. So does, like, if I came to Muskogee, Oklahoma, would there be a place where, like, a burial marker, like Doc Holliday has a burial marker? No, not at all. But they do have a, a, a grave uh, uh, tombstone in the Three Rivers Museum in Muskogee where they were saying they're hoping that possibly if they find this grave, they're going to put it on it. They also, in Muskogee, is in the process of building a statue of Bass Reeves. There's already one statue of him in Fort Smith, Arkansas, on horseback, but they're going to have him walk at his beat in Muskogee uh, with his cane and the statue that they're going to uh, put up. And that'd be real close to the Three Rivers Museum, which is the historical museum in Muskogee. I believe also, there's, a statue uh, in there's a statue in Paris, Texas. Yeah, there's a small statue in Paris, Texas, in the uh, courthouse, the county courthouse mm. of Bass. And Bass did work at the uh, Eastern District of Texas in Paris for four years. And basically, uh, at that time, he was working into the Indian Territory, the Ch Chickasaw and Choctaw Nations. But he, the, those deputies were stationed in Paris, Texas. At any of the museums that have stuff about Bass, do... Like if I was if I was to get into my truck and drive to a museum, is there places where his clothes or his weapons or his badges that the public can be can see it? Oh, that's a good question. There there will be some things purportedly owned by Bass in the brand new uh, U.S. Marshals Museum, which is supposed to open later this year in Fort Smith, Arkansas, mm -hmm. and. Uh, they do have uh, some some 
things is now he not actually is, but they do have a like a mannequin in the Three Rivers Museum dressed up like Bass uh, holding his horse. Um, but his things that he actually owned are hard to prove and hard to find. So uh, I'm sure there'd be some replica type things. Also, too, I would like to say, Mike, Bass was not the first black deputy marshal Western Mississippi River. That's that's uh, something that's really out there. But he was one of the first, but he wasn't the first. No, but he was one of the best. Yeah, he became the best. I mean, period. I mean, if, if we look at Bass Reeves, he's probably the greatest gunfighter in the Wild West. He arrested upwards of 4,000. They say he arrested more men than anybody in the history of the U.S. Marshal Service. Mm-hmm. Um, he was probably the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, frontier hero in United States history, period. Uh, he walked in the Valley of Death every day for 32 years. People tried to kill him. He was in numerous gunfights. The newspaper stated he had killed 14 men in the line of duty, but there were several newspapers stated he killed over 20 men in the line of duty. So there's no lawman in the Wild West ever had that many gunfights and lived to tell about it. Uh, he was he was he was phenomenal. He was he was something unique, and he was not a bully. He was very kind and considerate of people, and uh, people loved him uh, for who he was and what he did, and for treating them you know, respectfully like he did to everybody. He was six feet two, 190 pounds. They say he could whip any two men with his bare hands. Mm -hmm. But if you got in a gunfight with him, it was tantamount to committing suicide. Mm -hmm. So I I have a question. We got about five minutes. Yes, sir. It's going to be one you may not have been asked, but I've asked before. In your research with Bass Reeves, think about that. Right. If you could get in a time machine and go back into a period of Bass's life to see something, witness something, hear something, when would you, where would you go, you know, what date, what time, what would you go, where would you go in that time machine, and what would you want to see and hear or ask? I would probably... Uh, first off, like to go to 1884 when he was bringing in outlaws in the dozens. And they said he was very colorful at what he did. And, and just uh, like to uh, meet him and talk to him and and try to get to know him a little bit better. Um, you know, he, he, he was, I don't know, he was, he was larger than life, man. And so he was, he was really special. Um, so, yeah, 1884, and then maybe later in his life, I would like to, you know, go visit him in 1904, 1905, and have a discussion with him at that time. That's a long period. You know, he was a lawman a long, long time. Actually, you know, when he started as a deputy marshal for Fort Smith's court, they used to have to do a loop over 400 miles into the territory mm-hmm. before they got back to Fort Smith. And uh, they would have a wagon or two wagons. They were called tumbleweed wagons. And the outlaws would be chained ankle to ankle. They were not riding the wagons. They had to walk. And so they say it was like a circus caravan uh, that, you know, these marshals coming across the prairie with these outlaws they had captured. But, yeah, that that's that would be great uh, to see that. I, I hope somebody, if they do a movie on it one day, they do it right. I hope they can kind of show that in a movie. Are you are you pleased that Taylor Sheridan has taken on the role of bringing Bass Reeves alive? Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with it, and I think it's going to help uh, get Bass's name to the public. I'm waiting, waiting to see the depiction, though, uh, of, of how they depict Bass in the production. Uh, I'm I'm eager to see how that's going to play out. Do you have anything new that you're working on? Um, yeah, I'm doing some research on Muskogee. Muskogee was actually the wildest town in the Wild West. It wasn't Dodge City or Tombstone or Deadwood. It's, it was Muskogee, Oklahoma. The majority of deputies marshals were killed in the 50-mile radius of Muskogee. Uh, there was over 120 deputies marshals killed in Indian Territory. And Muskogee was a killing field. And it was a wild town anyway uh, for 50 years or so. And so uh, Muskogee has totally been overlooked. 
but it was the wildest town in the wild west. Would you, are you, would you come back again if I asked you? Oh, sure. sure. Okay. Go ahead, too. You heard it. So if you wondering who we're talking to, again, it's, well, you know who you're talking to. We, it's, I don't even know where the hour went. It went so fast. Uh, we're talking to Art Burton. You can find him at artburton.com. You can find all of his books on Amazon. Uh, books are Black, Red, and Deadly, Black, Buckskin, and Blue. Black Gun, Silver Star, Cherokee Bill, and then the new edition of Black Gun, Silver Star, which has even more information. If you want to listen to his music, which I urge you to do so, go to Spotify and go to Art Turk Burton on Spotify and give a listen and give a follow like I did and subscribe to his music channel. Um, he's got a lot going on. It's um, I've got even more questions. I've got to go back and research more because I've got more questions about the other books. Again, if you want to find his books, um, you can find it at Amazon by just typing in the words Art T, the letter T, Burton. And all his books will come up for sale. And I urge you to get them and add that to your Western History, Western History Library. Again, if you're listening to on me on, on Spotify or iTunes, please give a rating and review. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, also, you can find these podcasts on YouTube by going to my Cochise County underscore travels YouTube page. If you want to find my travels, where I'm going and what I'm doing, um, which I travel a lot across the country. I've got, I'm going to Tulsa, Oklahoma pretty soon in a couple of weeks. And so, um, for work, and I've got a guy there that's going to take me around Tulsa. So you can find me on Instagram at Cochise County underscore travels. You can also find me on Facebook where we have even more stuff going on at, uh, Cochise County underscore travels. Anything you want to add before we go, sir? Yeah, I, I truly enjoyed this, and I hope people will read my books and digest them and uh, see them up the way on the trail. And again, if you want to get a hold of Art, you have any questions, uh, you can get a hold of him and see what's going on on his website at artburton.com. Uh, he is not available for uh, window tinting or changing the oil or tire rotations. Um, he, he's already said he doesn't do that. Mike, let me let me do do say I will be the keynote speaker at oh. the Bass Reeves History Conference. There you go in uh, Muskogee, third weekend June. Third weekend of June, and how, and it would, right. are you going to put that on your website? Sure, sure. Okay, put that on there so folks can get put the date. So put that date, and again, what date is that? That's the third weekend in June. I believe it's the twenty second, twenty third. Perfect. Well, again, I appreciate you guys for listening. Uh, safe travels, and we'll see you soon.